I love the subtitle of this series, Self-Evaluation Leading to Spiritual Transformation. The reality is self-evaluation is always a little bit of a risk, right? It's always a little bit dangerous when we choose to peel back the layers a little bit. It always takes just a little bit of courage to look at our heart and go, what am I really feeling right now? How do I feel towards others? Or to look at our mind and say, how are the thoughts I'm having right now affecting my daily living? So I love as a church that we're committed to doing the hard work, right? That we're committed to assessing ourselves for the purpose of trying to be more and more like Jesus each and every day. And so we're going to look at uh, one more line from that assessment this morning. If you will, go to that first slide. And the line from the assessment that we're going to be looking at is, I share my faith with others in an effort to make disciples. And so when we think about this, this is something that uh, each of us has an opportunity to reflect on. Each of us are in conversations with others each and every day. And so it's such an important question for us to consider as a church this morning. Uh, But before we do that, I would like to tell a story about the first time I ever remember taking one of these spiritual assessments. And I'm going to tell this story about a friend of mine, and I'm going to call him Ken. Ken is not his real name. Uh, And Ken is just a super enthusiastic person. You have to know that about Ken. Uh, He's got a real zest for life. When people ask people to volunteer, Ken is always going to throw his hand up. And Ken and I were in youth group together. And one year, Uh, The elders decided that all the classes were going to be together for a whole quarter, and we were going to study the spiritual gifts. And at the end of that, we were going to take an assessment. And the next week, we were prepped on this, that the next week we were going to be asked to share our spiritual gift with the whole class, right? So this was kind of a bold thing for our church, but we were really trying to think about spiritual gifts. We were trying uh, to get plugged into the life of the church even more. And so my buddy Ken came prepared, and our youth group was sitting towards the front, And the teacher says, okay, it's time to share your spiritual gift. Who wants to go first? Share your name and your gift, et cetera. And so my buddy Ken, he's ready. He pops up and he says, hey, my name is Ken, and I have the spiritual gift of extortion. And and everybody stops. They're like, the spiritual gift of extortion, and there's a pause, and there's some laughter. And finally, the teacher leans over to my buddy Ken and says, Ken, that's exhortation, right? Uh, And so he might not have got the assessment, right? He might not have done it the way it was supposed to be done, but that's not the point, right? Uh, And so if you haven't taken the assessment this morning, I want to encourage you uh, that that that's not why we're looking at uh, this question in the first place. So if we're going to look at this, we're going to break it into two sections, and we're going to start with, I share my faith with others. And so when we think about uh, the way that we talk about faith, words, whether we like it or not, Uh, in our culture, kind of take on a life of their own. And we can think of a lot of these words that uh, were maybe meant to mean one thing, uh, but due to adaptation have several meanings, right? And so if I were to say, I love my family, uh, when I'm out at lunch today, I might say, I love tacos, right? And we might say, okay, right, Uh, we're using love, but those are two totally different meanings of the word. Hopefully there's a vast difference between the love that I have for my family and for Uh, my lunch. And so I think this has happened with the word faith as well. So if you'll go two slides uh, ahead, please. These two common usages of the word faith, the first of which is faith as a biblical principle or value, right? This is the type of faith that we see explained in scripture. This is the type of faith to which we aspire. This is the type of faith 
that our discipleship is rooted in. And the most classic example of this type of faith comes from Hebrews 11.1, right? This explanation that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, right? This is the type of faith that we're seeking to have that no, no matter what is going to happen in the future, I'm going to remain assured in what Jesus said is true, right? I'm going to have conviction to face the unknown with courage because of what Jesus has said is going to happen. So this is faith, right? And in that sense, it's an extension of what I already know to be true. The characteristics, the love of God that I know helps me to embrace the things that are coming, whether I know what those things are going to be or not. And so we know uh, that God is trustworthy, and so we can have such a faith. But the second usage of the word faith has kind of become a shorthand usage for my spiritual journey, right? If I'm talking to someone, I might say, well, my faith this or my faith that, and I might be talking about my views of the world or I might be talking about maybe my own personal spiritual life, my Bible reading, my prayer. And this is an okay usage of the word faith too, but those are two totally different things. And so when we talk about sharing faith, what are we talking about? And the answer is probably a little bit of both, right? We're trying to point people back to Scripture. We're trying to point people back to the assurance and the conviction that we have. But hopefully we're also sharing our story a little bit as well, right? Hopefully we're also willing to peel back the layers of our personal experience and the experience that we've had of God. So both of these are true. And a great example of these two kind of being combined comes from the story of the Samaritan woman. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 4, verses 39 through 42, give us an example of this transition. Give us the example of using a personal story to ultimately pointing people back to an experience of Jesus that they have on their own, which today, most of which uh, comes from Scripture. So it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, right? She shares the experience that she had just had, and people are curious, right? People are wanting to know more, so much so that they say, hey, Jesus, why don't you come and stay with us. And verse 42 tells us, we no longer believe just because of what you said, speaking about the woman's testimony. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so that's really the transition we hope happens when we share our story, right? Uh, their experience of Jesus might start with our words, but hopefully we're pointing them back to Jesus himself. And ultimately, they're able to say for themselves, I know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so Richard War offers a, a good thought here. He says, what we know about God is important, but what we do with what we know about God is even more important, right? Uh, we're blessed to know Jesus. We're blessed to have heard this story, but do we love to tell it? Right? It's a great song that we sang. Do we love to tell it? Do we get joy from sharing about Jesus with others? And so this morning, we're going to look at that from the lens of friendship. Right? There are so many reasons we could share about Jesus with others. We could share about Jesus because he's our Savior. We could share about Jesus because he's our King. We can share about Jesus for a variety of reasons. But this morning, I'd like for us to think about it as we want to share about Jesus because he is our friend, right? Jesus is truly our friend. And that's kind of maybe hard for us to say, right? We might be even more comfortable saying he's our savior, or he's our teacher, uh, or he's our king, but he's our friend too, right? That's what scripture uh, tells us. Tom did a great job 
you know, introducing this by, by looking at the fact that, you know, true love comes from laying your life down for a friend, right? Greater love has no one than this, and Jesus is truly our friend. So let's read our scripture for this morning together one more time. John 15, verses 14 through 17. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command to love each other. And so from our worldly point of view, verse 14 might kind of sound like a contingency, right? If you do this, then I'll do this. But that's not really what it's about, because verse 13 is when it said that he has laid down his life for us, or that he's going to, right? He's speaking of this to come in John 15, but he's telling them about the love that he's going to show. And so this isn't really a contingency as much as it is a covenant, right? God has done this for us, and in response, we are going to want to share about him to others. We are going to want to do his master's business. And he's telling us that I've told you what the master's business is. I've given you a role to play, and that role is loving others for the purpose of pointing them to me. And so when we think about that, Jesus models that friendship for us as well. And it looks different uh, than we might expect on the surface, right? And people during that particular time, they did not like the people that Jesus hung out with, right? They had a problem with the table fellowship that Jesus would keep. Uh, It made them very uncomfortable. And one of the examples of that comes from Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. It says, After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi, who was sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them, right? These tax collectors, these people who literally turned their back on their own country to work for the conqueror, right? To work for the Roman Empire. These are not popular people. These are people who have made a choice to go against their family, right? A choice to go against their nation. But here we see Jesus reclining at the table with them. So what happens? Luke 30 verses 30 through 32, Luke 5, 30 through 32. And when the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And these are some words and some phrases that we might have a little bit of trouble with today, right? We don't really like to use the word sin, much less call someone a sinner, right? And repentance has taken on a feel that I don't think it was ever supposed to convey, right? Repentance is a really good word, and we're going to talk about that uh, here in just a second. But we have a hard time maybe even hearing this phrase, but this is a phrase of hope, right? This is a beautiful phrase 
that healing is being brought to those who need it, that hope is being brought to those who need it. And we have a personal experience of having had that happen in our lives, right? Of being transferred, it says, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light, right? What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing that hope and healing are. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening right now. And this table that makes you so uncomfortable, these people that I'm hanging around that make you so uncomfortable are getting to be with me. And that's a place where hope and healing is. It's truly an encouraging passage. So what does that mean for us, right? As we transition to this second part of the statement, in an effort to make disciples, what does this really look like, right? How are we supposed to live into that? How are we supposed to model our lives after Jesus? And the first question we might ask is, does our table look like Jesus's, right? If you go to that slide again, where it speaks about the people that are at the table, right? Does our Do our friendships look like that? And and when we think about this idea of helping our friends become disciples, we might say, okay, well, I don't want to be coercive, or I don't want to be manipulative, or I don't want to, you know, do a bait and switch about why I'm really friends with a person. I think those are really good concerns. And I think Jesus doesn't want that either. In fact, Jesus multiple times will give a message to somebody, and they'll choose to respond differently than he would want them to, right? Right? And he even doesn't chase after them sometimes. Sometimes when you're reading a passage, you're like, okay, Jesus, this rich young ruler is really close, right? I think y'all could work this out, right? Why aren't you following him and and, and making him come and believe, right? But he lets them go because he knows that people are only going to believe if they come to it on their own, right? If they recognize the need that they have for Jesus. And so when we think about helping our friends do that, we're definitely not wanting to do so in a way that is manipulative or coercive, but we are wanting to do so in a way that's hopeful, in a way that presents healing as a part of our friendships. And so Leonard Sweet, when speaking about this table, he says, Jesus didn't keep a moral table, but he kept a healing table, right? Is your presence, is the way that you live your life a healing life, right? Are you being around others? Are you giving hopeful messages? Are you pointing uh, those who need Jesus to Jesus. So repentance is not a bad word, right? This is something we're all called uh, to share with one another. Repentance is the translation of the Greek word metanoia, which essentially implies a change in our way of thinking, a turning back or a return. It does not mean putting ourselves down or being preoccupied with our sinfulness or feeling sorry for ourselves. Neither is it aimed at earning acceptance, deserving forgiveness, or achieving God's favor. True repentance involves the complete turnaround of our mind and our outlook that turns us in a new direction, right? And how many times in our own lives have we been stuck in a rut, right? Have we been doing something over and over and it's not yielding the results that we want? We've been looking for happiness in places that happiness truly can't flow from. What a gift it is to help people turn, right? What a gift it is to help people refocus. What a gift it is to point people in the right direction. And that's what's supposed to be happening in our friendships. Jesus always positioned repentance with the good news, right? With the news of his coming. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, right? It's connected together. Change your ways, change your mind, change your thinking, and embrace this good message. Embrace this good news. Experience the life change that comes from following Jesus. And so how can we follow Jesus' example? And the first thing that I would suggest is we've got to pursue these kingdom friendships, right? 
we've got to stay friends with folks. Sometimes when we, you know, we have these friendships and they can get frustrating and especially sometimes our friendships with non-believers, they can be very taxing sometimes, but we've got to, we got to stay in those friendships, right? And it's because we love the people that we're friends with, right? It's because we want them to ultimately experience God. And so these kingdom friendships are out of the reality is that our friends are, are where we once were, right? Justin Whitmill early puts it this way, to be friends with sinners is our only option, right? We're not approaching that table the same way that Jesus is. We're seeking to model our lives after Jesus, but we can relate exactly to where those people are coming from because we too needed Jesus to rescue us from our own sinfulness. And so one way to guard against the mindset of the Pharisees is to remember what Jesus has done for us and to approach each one of our relationships through that lens. And we know that there is a cost to discipleship, right? We know that discipleship comes with risk. We know that discipleship comes with expectations, but we also have to remember that there is a cost to non-discipleship as well. And this is the cost that our friends are experiencing. This is the cost that we want to relieve them of. Dallas Willard puts it this way. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and to withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said that he came to bring, right? Discipleship is good. Discipleship allows us to experience love and peace and hope and joy in a way that we cannot outside of Jesus. And we can't forget this, right? When we're talking to others about discipleship, we're doing it because we are offering them a gift, an abundant life, right? An abundant life that comes from following Jesus. And so doing this is always a part of that mission, right? He's told us that we know the master's business. We're not doing this out of our own ability to persuade. We're not doing this out of our own ability to, to change lives. We're doing this because Jesus is the one that can change lives. John 15, if we go back to the very beginning of the chapter, speaks this way. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You, already, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Right? So what does that look like from a conversational standpoint? Right? What does it mean to remain in me in our conversations. And I feel like this means that we should be able to tell if we look back at our week, whether or not our conversations were saturated with faith talk or not, right? That should be a pretty easy thing to tell. If we take inventory of ourselves and go, how much was I talking about Jesus this week? And I want to talk about a social situation. I'll admit I'm not the most I'm not the best at social situations. My wife will tell me that all the time, right? I bring awkwardness into a lot of the environments that we're in. Uh, but one of the situations that I find particularly awkward is when someone's introducing you to one of their friends and that friend says, I have heard a lot about you, right? I immediately don't know what to do. My options are not good. I can say, I've heard a lot about you. 
And then awkwardness is like at a whole new level, right? We have both reached this. We know something about each other, but neither one knows what we know. And that's just really awkward, right? Or I can say, I don't know anything about you at all, right? That's option number two. And and that's just not cool, right? And so option number three is my default in which I make some kind of, you know, bad joke in that moment, right? And so none of those options are good, right? But the situation is one that I hope, you know, is emulated in the way that we think about how our friends would respond if they met Jesus, right? If our friends met Jesus, would they say, I have heard a lot about you because I'm friends with so-and-so, right? Is that what they would say? They would say, hey, you know, I'm just encountering you for the first time, but I'm friends with Matt, and he's been talking about you all the time, right? So I feel like I already kind of know you because of how much your friend has been talking about you, right? That's what we want. That's what we want our friends to know, that when they finally dig into Scripture, when they finally come to worship, or when they finally seek a relationship with God, that they're not starting from scratch, right? That they're starting having had you talk about them a lot, having had you talk about Jesus a lot in your everyday speech. So let's look at the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, uh, reminds us that this authority is not our own, right? In the same way that this abiding in me is driven by Jesus, our authority to go out and make disciples in the first place is from Jesus as well. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right. And so not only is he empowering us with his authority, he's empowering us with his presence. Right. There is not a conversation that we're in that he is not there with us. Right? There is not an opportunity that we have to share our faith that he is not right there with us. Right? And that's the most empowering thing that there ever could be. The master's business is being conducted, and we have the opportunity to choose to participate in it or not. And Jesus desires that we do. And this might take being courageous. Right? This is my last uh, point of how we follow Jesus in this. We're going to have to have some courage And Jesus has told us this may not go how we're hoping it will go. John 15, again, if we were to read down verses 18 through 19, say, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Right? That's some strong language, right? But if we expect every one of our conversations about Jesus to go well, then we're being unrealistic, right? The text is telling us that we are going to face some pushback, right? And I'm afraid because of this external pressure, sometimes we never even deal with the internal pressure, right? I think sometimes we put more pressure on ourselves than we may actually encounter in the world. It's been my experience that most of the time when you ask somebody, hey, can I pray for you? or when you offer them a word of encouragement that's rooted in Scripture, I've been blessed to have the experience that most of the time, whether they even agree with it or not, they'll appreciate the effort that you made, right? They'll appreciate the intentionality. They'll appreciate that you cared enough to try to relate to them in that particular moment. So what does it look like to be courageous? Sharing takes time. Vulnerability takes courage. It may be true that vulnerability cannot happen without sharing, But sharing can certainly happen without 
vulnerability, right? Uh, we may have relationships in our lives that if we really think about them, they're 100% surface level, right? And it's not possible to have a real relationship of depth with everybody. I believe that. I believe that Scripture affirms that. But I think that Scripture does say that there are going to be some relationships that we're responsible for taking it to that next level, right? That we're responsible for recognizing uh, that we have a concern for this person that's rooted in the hope of the gospel. And we've got to get below the surface, right? We've got to get below the casual. and We've got to make it a covenant friendship, right? We've got to bring them into uh, the Jesus that we know and to share it with them. We have control over how much of our story we are willing to share, and we can choose to be in superficial relationships with the people around us, or we can true to ha- we can make the choice to have faith conversations that honor the complexity of life and speak honestly about the gospel. And so I'd like to end with this verse again from Hebrews 11.1, 1, because I think it it does also describe our conversations, right? Sometimes in conversations, we are stepping into the unknown, right? Sometimes we don't know how people are going to react. Sometimes we don't even know how we're going to respond if they're going to ask us a question, and that's equally terrifying, right? Sometimes we don't know exactly how things are going to go, but even in the midst of this unknown, we can have ultimate assurance and conviction, right? We can have ultimate assurance that Jesus is our king, and no matter what we do, his kingdom is secure, right? And, and we just get the opportunity and the blessing to participate in the sharing of the things of Jesus. And so we don't always know how it's going to work out, uh, but we know in the midst of it, if we love our friends, if we love them well, and if that friendship flows out of the friendship that Jesus has for us, ultimately, uh, God will be honored in those relationships. And so maybe this morning you feel the need to make a response of courage. Maybe something has touched you, maybe you've peeled back a layer or two and said, I need to be more intentional in my friendships. Or maybe today is the day that, that you feel that you need to put on Jesus in baptism. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe you need some prayers. Maybe there are some things that we can do for you as a church this morning. So we would love for you to come now as we stand and as we sing.